Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Oh my gosh. I have been waiting for this day ever since you asked. You sent that text like, hey homie, will you do a book talk with me? And I'm like, do you even have to ask? This is an immense honor. So before we jump in, let me give a formal thank you all for being here. Um, and to say good evening, welcome to tonight's virtual program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. I'm a writer and organizer and activist, contributor at NBC News and MSNBC, host of the podcast Undistracted, and your very grateful moderator for tonight's program. I am delighted to be in conversation tonight with my dear, dear friend, Dr. Clint Smith, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the 2016 poetry collection, Counting Descent. Tonight, we will talk about Clint's new book, How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. In How the Word is Passed, Clint provides a sweeping and rigorous account of the imprints that slavery has left behind on all of our contemporary lives, from plantations to prisons to monuments and urban landscapes. So before we begin, I'd like to remind the audience that if you'd like to ask us a question, please ask it in the chat or the comment section, and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible because I know you all have some burning questions. We'll talk about that toward the end of the program. So why don't we go ahead and get started? First of all, friend, how are you? It's so good to see you. Uh, I've missed you. You too. Uh, thank you for agreeing to to do this. We used to do this every week back in the day. <laughs> um, and I am uh, I'm so grateful uh, to you and, and for your friendship. Um, and I, people don't know I got to I got to hug Brittany uh, for the first time in a long time, it was glorious. Uh, this past weekend, we saw each other, um, and and you know this pandemic is it's been a ride. It has been a ride, um, but I am uh, grateful to uh, to be putting this book out into the world uh, and and to be able to do so uh, alongside a dear friend. So thank you for agreeing to this. And because one of the things in the before times, I was like, oh, me and Brittany definitely going to do an event together because we're both in the DMV. <laughs> right. and, and then, you know, but but now we get to do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then after, and I get to do it wearing my slippers. And so same. You go. My slippers are definitely on my feet right now. Before we get started and I ask you the millions of questions that I have, um, you have something special to share with us as we start off the conversation. I do. So I'm going to uh, start off the conversation um, by reading a poem. Uh, and so for, for folks who might not be familiar with me, um, I uh, am, uh, this book is a book of narrative nonfiction, uh, but I am, I began my writing life as, as a poet. Uh, and poetry for me uh, has always been both an act of, of creating art, but also an act of thinking. Um, it allows me to to think and process and wrestle with questions that I might not have the answer to and, and questions that might not have an easy answer. Uh, and, and a part of what I appreciate about the poetic space is that it it pushes you to uh, to home in on on the granular, on the microscopic, to focus on the uh, the most uh, nuanced and, and granular of details um, or or of an idea or of of a moment. Um, and and pushes you to sort of lean into it and lean into the complexity and the multifaceted nature of it. So all that's to say, uh, I want to share this poem that I wrote at the beginning of this writing process, which started four years ago, uh, when I was first starting to grapple with the questions of memory and slavery and the Civil War and uh, the confluence of, of those things. Uh, and poems, you know, I was writing these poems to think through what that meant and what that looked like and how I was situated in relationship um, to the memory of slavery uh, and how it is remembered or failed to be remembered in so many different parts of this country. So uh, I'm going to share this poem with you all, uh, which is also 
it's a poem, but when you're a poet writing a book of nonfiction, sometimes you write a poem and then you like turn the stanzas into paragraphs and then like make the line breaks and add some commas and, uh, and then slide it in there uh, at the end of one of your chapters. So this is also an adaptation of, uh, or an excerpt uh, from, from the book itself. Growing up, the iconography of the Confederacy was an ever-present fixture of my daily life. Every day on the way to school, I passed a statue of PGT Beauregard riding on horseback, his Confederate uniform slung over his shoulder, and his military cap pulled far down over his eyes. As a child, I did not know who PGT Beauregard was. I did not know he was the man who ordered the first attack that opened the Civil War. I did not know he was one of the architects who designed the Confederate battle flag. I did not know he led an army predicated on maintaining the institution of slavery. What I knew is that he looked like so many of the other statues that ornamented the edges of this city. These copper garlands of a past that saw truth as something that should be buried underground and silenced by the soil. After the war, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy reshaped the contours of treason into something they could name as honorable. We call it the lost cause, and it crept its way into textbooks that attempted to cover up a crime that was still unfolding. They told us that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, guilty of nothing but fighting for the state and the people that he loved, that the Southern flag was about heritage and remembering those slain fighting to preserve their way of life. But see, the thing about the lost cause is that it's only lost if you're not actually looking. The thing about heritage is that it's a word that also means I'm ignoring what we did to you. I was taught the Civil War wasn't about slavery, but I was never taught how the declarations of Confederate secession had the promise of human bondage carved into its stone. I was taught that the war was about economics, but I was never taught that in 1860, the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. I was taught that the Civil War was about states' rights, but I was never taught how the Fugitive Slave Act could care less about a border and spell Georgia and Massachusetts the exact same way. It's easy to look at a flag and call it heritage when you don't see the black bodies buried behind it. It's easy to look at a statue and call it history when you ignore the laws written in its wake. I come from a city abounding with statues of white men on pedestals and black children playing beneath them, where we played trumpets and trombones to drown out the Dixie song that still whistled in the wind. In New Orleans, there are over 100 schools, roads, and buildings named for Confederates and slaveholders. Every day, black children walk into buildings named after people who never wanted them to be there. Every time I will return home, I used to drive on streets named for those who would have wanted me in chains. Go straight for two miles on Robert E. Lee, take a left on Jefferson Davis, make the first right on Claiborne, translation, go straight for two miles on the general who slaughtered hundreds of black soldiers who were trying to surrender, take a left on the president of the Confederacy who made the torture of black bodies the cornerstone of his new nation, make the first right on the man who permitted the heads of rebelling slaves to be put on stakes and spread across the city in order to prevent the others from getting any ideas. What name is there for this sort of violence? What do you call it when the road you walk on is named for those who imagined you under a noose? What do you call it when the roof over your head is named after people who would have wanted the bricks to crush you? Wow, 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 wow. Um, from that work to this book, there is the gift of memory um, the gift of truth that you are so, um, so wise to give so often. Um, and obviously the lens of poetry that you bring to everything. I felt sincerely in the book, right? I mean, I first got to know you obviously as a friend, but also as an educator um, in traditional classrooms, in jails and prisons um, with our incarcerated family, um, but also as a poet. And so to understand the connective tissue between how you got from what you just read on the page there to this um, speaks so much to your authenticity. Um, and like how you bring all of yourself to this. So, so I want to, I want to get into this. I want to get into what it means for you. I want to get into what you feel like it can mean for us. Um, this book is so much about place. Lots of people have written really important books about the system of enslavement and the history of slavery in this country. And they spent most of their time in an academic hall, in a library, in an office, 
and you decided to do the opposite. You decided to actually get out there um, and be in so many of the places where many of us would think to go, many of us would not think to go. Why did you make the choice to be physically present in order to write this? Yeah, uh, I should say, you know, that this book is, is, as you've alluded to, like one contribution to uh, this sort of large, vast, remarkable ecosystem of uh, scholarship that so many scholars and historians have worked on across, across generations. And, and this book is not possible without the work of academic historians who spent their lives in the archives, without the work of public historians who, who are standing on that land and curating the stories of that land and telling the stories of that land, without the teachers and the activists and the organizers and the students who are uh, constantly engaged in the project of preserving, uh, preserving memory and the memory of, of enslavement. For me, I've spent the past several years uh, deeply engaged, as many as and many of us have, um, in books that have helped me more effectively understand the history of this country, in books that have helped contextualize so much of the work that you and and so many other activists are doing, right? And I think that that's the power, part of the power of social movements. Uh, we saw it throughout the civil rights movement, and we see it throughout Black Lives Matter. Is that you know there's it's not only the efficacy of such movements are not only seen through policy. Uh, and let uh, the policy legislation or or certain uh, narrow conceptions of political change, uh, all those you know legislation and those things matter. It also shifts the way that our society understands itself, right? And so a, a thing that I I tell people, and I think I've told you this, is that like in 2013, if you would ask somebody what redlining was, they'd have been like, "Is that a new makeup line? Like, is that some is that some lipstick Rihanna put out?" Um, and you know, and, and now we, there are more, many more people who have a much more sophisticated understanding of racism, not as simply an interpersonal phenomenon, but, uh, but a systemic one and a historical one. So, so I spent a lot of time with these books, uh, that have, and with deeply engaged in historiography, the historiography of slavery, um, that has helped me make sense of the world we're living in today. And part of what I was doing was like thinking about what would it mean if I took the best of a book like uh, Annette Gordon Reed's The Hemings as a Monticello, which is like a remarkable, incredible text uh, that was transformative for me in so many ways and grounded it in place. And like, what is, you know, cause it's something, it's one thing to read about a slave cabin and it's another thing to stand inside of one. Like it's one thing to sort of understand that cabin as a as an intellectual abstraction. It's another thing to hear the way the wood moans when you step on it. It's another thing to see the way that light slides in through different cracks in the wood. Um, it's one thing to study the people who lived on a plantation uh, and to see their names written in a text. And it is another thing to walk on the same land that they walked on, the land that they tilled, the land that they made possible. And so what I wanted to do was bring my background as a poet um, and add a sort of human texture uh, and an and emotional texture and sensory detail to make these, to make this history as three-dimensional as possible. What, who are the people on this, on this land who are telling the story? What do they look like? What do their voices sound like? Um, how does the light sort of slide across their cheek? What, what are the what is the physical landscape of that place like? What is the weather like? What does the air feel like? And it's just really trying to create what was is almost a, I hope like a sort of cinematic, three dimensional experience where people feel like they are there. Um, and I've learned that from from poets that I've uh, you know who are both my peers and people who are part of the tradition that I study. I've learned that from from novelists uh, and the way that they render characters three dimensional and complex and and full. Um, and I tried to bring the best of those uh, genres into this space and to write something that was a book of history, um, but also something that was uh, a sort of engaging three-dimensional narrative um, that made folks understand and feel a different sort of proximity to yeah. that history um, than they might otherwise. 
I mean, place, it, it, the rootedness that you have in the importance of place really comes through. I mean, I, I'm still thinking about you describing the way that the yellow flowers danced when the wind hit it as you're driving the road between Angola prison and the Whitney plantation, right? You start off the book with a land acknowledgement, right? That there is uh, an acknowledgement of the interconnectedness between black and indigenous people and what place means to all of us here in the Americas, in these United States of America. I'd be remiss in saying that I, if I didn't say um, that I'm currently in Delaware um, on, on break and I'm calling from um, historically Nantego land, right? I know that you're at home, so you're calling from Anacostan land, right? That the connection to the land, to the earth, all of this matters. And I also recognize that several of the places that you visited have an attachment to home for you, that they're either near home, where you live now, where you grew up, or they were literally around the corner from where you live now or grew up. Does home have a different meaning to you now? Has your understanding of what home is changed after visiting all of these places that you grew up near, uh, that you live near, but you put this new lens on it? Yeah, I I mean, the, the book originated in my hometown, right? The book originated after watching uh, the statues of Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, Peach T. Beauregard being taken down in, in my hometown in New Orleans in May of 2017. And this is two years after Dylan Roof took the lives of, of nine people at the uh, AME Church in South Carolina. Uh, and the country had, you know, that iteration of, you know, I feel like we've had sort of ebbs and flows and different iterations of our, you know, quote unquote, racial reckoning over the past several years. Um, but uh, and in that moment, you know, because Dylan Roof's, you know, uh, clothes and his notebooks and so much of what uh, the objects that were tied to him uh, were emblazoned with the iconography of the Confederacy. And because Bree Newsom in that moment also took down uh, the flag to make clear the relationship between what had happened uh, in South Carolina and the history of that flag that flew in front of the uh, South Carolina State Capitol there was this larger reckoning and conversation and more, a lot of monuments and, and Confederate iconography was being taken down. And it took two years for that to happen in New Orleans. And, and what happened was I was watching these statues come down and I was thinking like, what does it mean that this majority black city has more homages to enslavers than it does to enslaved people? And what are the implications of that? And like, what does it mean that in order to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And because part of what we know is that symbols and, and names and memorials are not just symbols and names and memorials. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And the stories that we tell embed themselves into the narratives that societies carry. And these narratives shape public policy and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so that's not to say that taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee is going to reduce the racial wealth gap, but it is to say that we recognize that all of those things are part of the same ecosystem of insidiousness and the same ecosystem of white supremacy that makes it so that harm continue has, has been enacted and continues to be enacted on people. And so for me, the the or the book emerged from a desire to better understand my home right it emerged from a desire it emerged from me looking around and saying like well how does the city in which like the levees and the roads and the buildings were literally as is the case for so many places across this country literally built by enslaved people what does it mean that the levee ride like running alongside the river is right next to a street named after someone who who was part of an army that fought a war predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery. And so it's this sort of cognitive dissonance this uh, that so many of us experience um, and, to, and for it to be embedded in the infrastructure of my city and in the soil of my city. Um, and I sort of start there and that's why I start the, the write the prologue there um, and, and then sort of zoomed out to think about, well, what it, this is what it looks like or doesn't look like in New Orleans. And what does it look like across this country? Um, and, and that is sort of how, uh, how I began this journey. So let's actually go to this place near home. Let's go to the Whitney Plantation and the time that you spend there. Because it occurs to me that you are putting this book out 
in a time where lots of people for their own reasons are pushing back against the idea that we keep talking about slavery, right? So you've got the critical race theory haters, the Nicole Hannah-Jones haters, you've got the UNC Board of Trustees, you've got GOP members who are say, or and, and everyday folks who say, I never owned a slave. This is this was way back then. It's time to get over it, right? We we know those folks. Those folks are probably not on this broadcast right now. But then there are people who do self-select into conversations like these, or at least walk around every day with a level of consciousness, and they too are saying, "We've heard those narratives. What about the other black narratives, right? What about black narratives of joy and ingenuity and innovation and and the future? What about Afrofuturism? What about all of these things? It's time enough, like time's up for the films and the books and the poetry about slavery." And then I think of your time traveling to the to the Whitney Plantation, and you really identified and contextualized the intersections at which this plantation sits, because it is both in a county where the poverty rate for Black folks and descendants of people who were enslaved on that plantation plantation um, is still massively high, and the wealth gap between white folks and Black folks in the county where this plantation existed um, is is quite large. Um, and you identify the fact that this is one of the many counties that kind of dot the Mississippi River that they call Cancer Alley because environmental racism has created a space where um, companies will build their uh, their 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 operations on black land and in black neighborhoods because the land is cheap um, and it literally is making folks sick in this same place. So you've got these intersections and I'm curious, how does a reframed understanding of slavery, how does us refusing to back away from this conversation help us, help anchor us in our understanding of why these intersections exist and on why a place like the Whitney Plantation is not just a place to look at through a historical lens, but this modern context reveals that the injustice continues. How does reckoning fully with slavery help us wrap our arms around that? Yeah, thank you for that, for that close, uh, that close reading. Um, you know, I am sympathetic to and very much understand the idea, uh, from from our own folks, right? That you know, oh, uh, there's so many movies about slavery, or there's so many books about slavery, or like you know, there's so many, like, what about the other stories? A hundred percent. Blackness is not singularly defined by our oppression. Blackness is not singularly defined by the violence that has been enacted on us. Blackness is not singularly defined by the 250 some odd years of enslavement in this country. We should have stories that that capture and reflect uh, and magnify the the magnitude and the plurality and the heterogeneity and the beautiful, remarkable diversity of the black experience in this country and and abroad. And you know, I'm so grateful for the creators who are putting out work that um, that reflects that plurality, and it's it is deeply important. At the same time, I think. We need to be careful, one, because slavery and generally things around racism, but like slavery is one of the only spaces in which people of all races make that sort of commentary, right? Like, the, or like, oh, there's so, you know, 12 years a slave, Underground Railroad, like all these movies about slavery. No one would ever say that about World War II movies. There's a World War II new movie nominated for an Academy Award every year, basically, right? No one would say that about Westerns. We got too many Westerns. Why do we keep making Westerns? You know, like no, people don't say that because they're, those moments are tied to whiteness. And the, and the part of the insidiousness of the project of white supremacy is that it attempts to make us feel like we are talking about something like slavery all the time when we actually are not talking about it in any way that is commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. And so part of what my book is doing is exploring the sort of, our sort of physical proximity to this land and this landscape. But, but also part of what I try to emphasize is like our temporal proximity, 
right? So slavery existed in this country for 250 years. If we're going to think about 1619 as being the sort of beginning of slavery in the British American colonies uh, in what would become the United States. Existed for 250 years and has only not existed for a little over 150. And so this institution existed for 100 years longer than it hasn't. And there are people alive today who were raised by, who loved, who were in community with, who knew people who were born into bondage. The woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture with the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person. Not the granddaughter, not the great-great-granddaughter, but the daughter of someone who was born into slavery in 2016. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved, right? So when my four-year-old son sits on my grandfather's lap, I imagine what it would have been like for my grandfather to sit on his grandfather's lap. And I'm reminded that this story that we tell ourselves was so long ago wasn't actually that long ago at all. We talk about slavery like it was in the Jurassic Age. Mm. Like it was like the dinosaurs, the Flintstones, <laughs> and slavery, right? And, and then MLK, and then everybody was fine. And then MLK came, <laughs> gave people some cotton candy, and we were good, you know? But like, in the scope of human history, this was just yesterday, mm. right? And so the idea that this system that existed for 100 years longer than it hasn't, in which there are people alive today who knew people who were enslaved, the idea that that system would have nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is both morally and intellectually disingenuous. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this project is be like, we are so close to this. And, and we are made, you know, I remember growing up again, being made to feel as if it was this thing that was so distant that it was in the stone age. And it, and it wasn't, it is so recent and, you know, the US, U.S. history is so young relative to so many of the histories of, of other countries across the world, right? So we've, we've only been a country, I mean, we've only for real been a democracy, arguably since 1965, but like, that's a whole, you know, we take the conversation in a different direction. But like, our history is so recent. And so I think, I say all that to say and to bring it together, we 100% need a diverse array of stories. My next book, uh, is as a collection of dad poems, right? So, you know, it's, I, I, I believe that, I believe that within myself, right? Not every book that I write is going to be about the history of slavery. The next book I write is going to be about what it was like to be up at three in the morning, having spit up on my shirt, you know? So, because I, I want to both embody the sort of plurality of the black experience that, that is reflective of so many of us. Um, so I think it's like so many things, it's a both and, you know, we need the so many of those other stories, and we also need to take seriously uh, that the history of slavery has shaped what our contemporary political, economic, and social infrastructure look like today in profound, profound ways. Uh, because if we don't understand that, then we allow, then we will fall into the trap that so many want us to fall into of thinking that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is somehow because of the people in those communities rather than what has been done to those communities again and again and again and again. Well, I hope that your um, dad poems include a poem about Jeremiah's favorite dinosaur because I know he's very obsessed with dinosaurs. And I'm not saying that if you listen to Clint on Brene Brown's podcast that you'll hear a cameo from one Jeremiah. But, you know, you might want to listen to it. Anyway, um... What's what surprised you on this journey? I mean, you have been researching this and doing this work and writing about this and thinking about it and probably dreaming about it at this point for, for so many years. Is it even possible that anything can surprise you about this anymore? I was, I think I was surprised by my capacity to be surprised. Um, I think I was, I was constantly surprised writing this book. I mean, it's, as much as this has been, you know, I've been engaged in, in this project for, you know, I've been writing it for four years, but I've been reading these, these books that are tied to it for, for, you know, for, it feels like a decade now, but I also don't want people to think that I am coming into this book or that I came into this book as, as an expert on slavery because I wasn't. And part of why I wrote this book was because there was so much that I didn't understand that I wanted to. Um, and so one place that I think about is, um, Angola prison, uh, Angola is 
you know, I've worked, as, as you mentioned, I've worked in prisons and jails for the past seven years. Um, so I'm familiar, intimately familiar um, with the nature and the scope and the scale uh, and the violence of the carceral state. Obviously not as intimately familiar as someone who is living in, in uh, a prison, but uh, but I go have gone into these places for many years. Nothing could have prepared me for what I experienced when I was at Angola. Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. It is uh, 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island Manhattan. It's a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. Uh, and it is a place that is built on top of a former plantation. What I tell folks, the, the comparison I always make is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the vast majority of people held there were Jewish, that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. And rightfully so. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. It would be, it would run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. We would never allow a place like that to exist because uh, it would so clearly be repugnant um, in, in so many, so many ways. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of people held there are black men serving life sentences who go out and work in fields for virtually no pay that used to be a, uh, and fields that used to be a plantation while someone watches over them with on horseback with a gun on their shoulder. And so when I go to Angola, part of what I'm thinking about are what are the ways that the history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us to certain types of violences that in, in another global context would be wildly unacceptable. And what does it mean that Angola not only is a place that doesn't, doesn't proactively attempt to uh, reckon with or uh, be honest about or address their relationship to the history that is still so unsettlingly present on that land, but it's that they have a gift shop in front of the prison uh, where they sell shot glasses and coffee mugs and sweatshirts and baseball caps and all sorts of paraphernalia uh, that is almost making a mockery of the conditions of the people who are living there right now. So one thing I think about, uh, and I took a picture of it, and I think about it all the time, is uh, there was a coffee mug with the silhouette of a watchtower on it. And on the watchtower, you can see the sort of small silhouette of the guard at the top. And you can see the silhouette of, of their gun. And above and below the silhouette on this coffee mug, uh, it said Angola, a gated community. And so, again, it is not that that place is is not addressing their relationship to the history of slavery, which it, it is not. It is that it is belittling and making light of something that thousands of people in that prison are continuing to experience in this day, many of whom are people who were sentenced when they were children, many of whom were sentenced uh, via non-unanimous juries, which the Supreme Court has subsequently ruled is unconstitutional, um, even though that same Supreme Court has ruled that it will not retroactively remove those uh, or allow those people to come up for, for resentencing, which, you know, that, it doesn't make any sense. But, but like that is, when you ask what surprises me or what surprised me, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. You know, the, the, we, I, I invoke Germany and like you go to the, I have not been, but from what I understand, you know, you go to the, the museums of what the concentration camps used to be. And they have gift shops and they have restaurants and they have museums. But one, to the, ex I, to, to the extent that I understand, they are tastefully and thoughtfully done. Two, they, the museums, uh, you know, Angola also has a museum and a museum that is connected to the gift shop that in no way addresses its history um, to slavery. It has a, an entire room dedicated to the prison rodeo. It has a wall dedicated to all the movies that have been filmed in Angola. It has a, Another wall dedicated to the as a sort of homage to the wardens, um, which is this sort of constellation of of white male faces just like looking down and uh, you know the again the sort of spectacle of and the parallels between um, the history and what's what's happening there are, are deeply unsettling, and and so you know those places have 
these things, but those places are not places where people continue to be held. People are not still in those camps. There are thousands of people at Angola and there is a gift shop selling shot glasses and coffee mugs um, and, and stuffed animals. Uh, so I could have written an entire book, honestly, just about Angola and how strange and haunting and uh, profoundly unnerving um, that experience was. But, you know, there were a lot of things I was surprised about, um, but that was, was certainly... Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. Along the top. I'll say when I read it, Angola had a lot of awful surprises, that chapter. Um, I also factually was surprised by what I learned when you went to New York City. Because I knew that enslavement had existed in New York City. I knew that it was common, right? I knew that despite what we get told, <laughs> that it was happening there too. But I've been walking around for the last two weeks asking all my friends, did you know that the second largest slave market in the United States was not down south? It was in the financial district in New York City. And there are now literal banks built on top of it as a terrible reminder that American capitalism was built by making Africans in America this country's first capital. So I'm sitting here having all of these surprising moments, realizing that even as someone who very intentionally tries to study these things, that I too have suffered from the mythology around this thing, right? And I mean, you encounter folks throughout your journey kind of all along the spectrum of the mythology of slavery, right? You, you go to a Confederate cemetery and you meet folks who are um, deeply concerned about preserving Confederate history and had lovely things to say about Robert E. Lee and his humility. And that's why he wouldn't like the statues being built about him, built about him right now. Um, but you also go to places like New York City and, and Monticello, right? Where folks are realizing that they never heard about the lives that the enslaved were living, the weddings, the funerals, the births. Um, those were moments of reminder for me about just how pervasive the mythology is. So I guess my question really is, what is at risk if we don't dismantle the mythology, right? And and I, in all of the ways that that manifests for people all across the spectrum. Yeah, I, and you're absolutely right that the different people I meet at these places uh, in and of themselves reflect the spectrum of understandings uh, and engagement with the memory of, of slavery. And so the people you allude to at Monticello uh, are a woman named Donna and Grace. And, you know, it was an interest that that moment was really important for me because in another, in another situation, in another context, in another life, this book could have just been a sort of extended meditation instead of reflections by me going to these places. Like it could have been a, a, a collection of personal essays about me going to places and thinking about my relationship to these places. But it was at the beginning of my reporting um, that I went up to uh, Don and Grace and Monticello. Um, and we had been on Monticello is, uh, for those who are, might be unfamiliar, the, the home of uh, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, one of our founding fathers. And Jefferson is interesting to me because I think he embodies the... Uh, the contradictions and personifies the contradictions of this country in the sense that America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable, unfathomable opportunities for millions of people uh, across generations for upward mobility and wealth accumulation in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. And that it has done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people uh, who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed in order to create those opportunities for these other groups. And Jefferson, I think similarly in some ways, uh, is the person who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and also is someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He wrote in the uh, de Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that black people are inferior to whites in, quote, endowments of body and mind. 
And so Jefferson is full of contradictions, complexities, and and things that again reflect reflect the contradictions and complexities of this country. And and you have to hold both of those at once because both of those things are the story of America. Both of those things are the story of Jefferson. And I went to Monticello because I wanted to understand how a place and an institution tells that story fully and honestly and centers the story not simply on Jefferson, but also on the hundreds of enslaved people uh, who, in my opinion, that land belongs to almost more than it belongs to him, right? The Fawcett's and the Hemingses and the Grangers and so many others who who lived on that land literally for more more time than he did. Jefferson was away in Paris and D.C. and New York and um, and Philadelphia for extended periods of time in his different positions with uh, the U.S. government. Uh, and so these families literally were the ones who were staying here for years at a time while he was gone, uh, continuing to maintain, cultivate, and, and build on that land. And so when I speak to Donna and Grace, there's uh, there are different tours at Monticello, and one of them is uh, the Slavery at Monticello tour. And my tour guide, David Thorson, um, fascinating, fascinating man, uh, had gone on, you know, did this hour-long tour that talked about Jefferson's relationship to the history of slavery and, and the enslaved families who lived at Monticello. And Donna and Grace, were. I was watching them during the tour, and like their mouth, their jaws dropped, and they were clearly so unsettled by what they were hearing. And so I went up to them after, and I was like, we were just talking about, you know, I wanted to understand their experience on of what they had heard. And they were like, I had no idea that Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And mind you, these are folks who, who, who bought plane tickets, who got hotel rooms, who rented a car, who bought tickets to come to this place almost as a pilgrimage to see the home of the third president of the United States, who had no idea that he was an enslaver, who had no idea who Sally Hemings was, who had no idea that Jefferson was the father of children whom he would go on to enslave. And that moment was important for me, as I think you mentioned, it was important for you, like, because it was, a, I think, in the worlds that we move in, it, it, we can take for granted that, you know, when somebody says Jefferson, everybody's like, oh, Jefferson, like, you know, like <laughs> that dude, you know, um, but but millions and millions of people across this country have no idea. And it is uh, it is emblematic of how so many people across this country know so little about slavery. Um, and they think they know because they did their, you know, Black History Month project and they may have watched 12 Years a Slave or they may, you know, they know the name Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. But it kind of goes back to what we were saying before, like we're made to feel like we talk about slavery all the time, but we don't talk about it in any way that is commensurate in our public discourse, at least. We don't talk about it in any way that is commensurate with the impact uh, that it has had on this country. And I think the risk uh, to your original question of a failing to help people like Donna and Grace understand how slavery has shaped our founding through the people who were our founders uh, and, and has shaped our contemporary landscape of uh, inequality Again, the risk is that people think that someone's personal failure uh, or an entire culture or demographic of people's inability to reach uh, or that or the disparities that certain demographics of people suffer, the demographics, if we're going to be specific in this context, that the dem the disparities that black people experience are the result of things that black people have done or not done themselves and not the result of hundreds and hundreds of years of state-sanctioned public policy in which Black people were literally second-class citizens. I mean, they began not as citizens, and then when they were ostensible citizens, were not even real citizens and, and had no actual way to meaningfully vote until 1965, right? And so, so I think that that is deeply important, um, and I think that why, part of why I wanted to lift up these places is because I think they have a unique ability and opportunity to to tell the story of slavery to folks who might not come pick up a 300 page book, who might not, um, you know, I think like hundreds of thousands of people visit Monticello every year. And what David Thorson can do in a 45 minute or 60 minute tour is is something that is really special. 
and unique and and something that can reach folks who might not otherwise be able to be reached in a different way. And I think that the work that so many of us are attempting to do is to attempt to, whether it be in writing or podcasting or public history or academic history or journalism or teaching or activism or organizing, is trying, we're, we are all engaged in the project of trying to build a more just and equitable world and trying to recognize that like people have accountability and need, uh, you know, should be held accountable and they need to do work on their own, but also that there, I think it, what's true is that there are a lot of people who, who like aren't even aware of what they don't know. Um, and, and I think it's about striking that balance of accountability and also generosity. Uh, cause I think about the moments and we've talked about this, like when people have extended generosity to me about things that I didn't know, uh, in ways that they didn't have to. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, you got folks like the Sons of Confederate Veterans where, you know, their sense of history is not based on empirical evidence. It's not based on primary source documents. It's something that's much more deeply emotionally entangled in their sense of themselves and who they are. And so you can present them with information, but that doesn't mean that that's going to shift how they think about history or think about themselves in relation to that history. But I do think that there are a lot of people, uh, who just don't know. And I have no, you know, Donna and Grace could have left there and nothing might've changed in their lives. They might've kept going, you know, these were folks who admitted to me, they were like, voted, voted Republican, conservative, watch Fox News, love Tucker Carlson. They could have gone on and kept doing those same things and, and nothing meaningful would have changed in their lives. Or maybe not, but, but it, that's not up to us. All we can do is try to meet folks where they are and present them with the information. And we don't have control over what they do after that, but that doesn't mean that presenting, trying to get this information in front of folks isn't uh, something that's still uh, a noble endeavor. Absolutely. So I have a million more questions, but so does our audience. So I want to go to a couple of those um, before I ask you my last question before we go. Um, a question from someone whose name may sound familiar to you, because they certainly sound familiar to me. A question from our friend Lyric Flood. The launch of your book coincides with the 100th anniversary of the Greenwood Massacre. Um, whether it wasn't or was intentional, how do you contextualize your text with Greenwood, Black Wall Street, and that legacy? For those who don't know the story over a 24-hour period, May 31st, 1921, um, Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which had been dubbed Black Wall Street due to the number of black businesses and entrepreneurs that were there were intentionally, the space was intentionally burned and bombed um, by um, local white power brokers. Um, and a hundred years later, the survivors and their descendants are still fighting for reparations. So, so how do you think about the contextual power of this book coming out right as that's happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, this book most centrally is about memory um, and how we remember what has happened in this country on this land. And in, in many ways, that is what the, the sort of contemporary project of Tulsa is centered on is, is recalibrating our memory and understanding of what that was. You know, Joe Biden uh, gave that speech uh, in which he he said that what happened in Tulsa was not a riot, it was a massacre. And that's not to say that will, like that in and of itself is gonna solve the problem, that that in and of itself makes it all okay and now everything's good, most certainly not. It does mean something. And I think it is, it does, it is part of a larger project of, of reframing uh, a piece of history that was specifically framed in a way to obfuscate and to cast a veil over or uh, push to the side one of the most horrific race massacres, if not the most horrific in some ways, a race massacre in the history of this country. Um, and because it was pushed aside, we are now attempting to use Tulsa almost as an entry point to think about the way that more broadly, Black people 
through the through the either direct force or complicity of the state had their wealth uh, and resources and bodies and lives taken away from them um, in in a in a myriad of different different ways and so I think that you know I I hope that my book can be one contribution to uh, helping us recalibrate our memory around slavery. And again, like our proximity to it, both our physical proximity to it and our proximity to it in terms of, of time. Um, we are not, there are people, one of the most powerful things about everything I saw this weekend with Tulsa was that there are survivors of Tulsa who are still alive today, right? Survive, people who are still alive, who lived through this thing that, that, that our history books attempted to pretend never happened. And, and that is a reminder in the same way that I think the woman uh, who uh, stood alongside the Obama family in 2016 is a reminder uh, that, that, these, that this history, whether it be Tulsa or slavery, wasn't that long ago, um, and that it, it undoubtedly shapes um, why so much of our society looks the way that it does today. So this next question comes from Jacob. They say, Clint, how did you tend to your spirit throughout your research and writing? What self-care did you do while physically entering these spaces of such deep hurt and harm? I ask that knowing that the, the book ends in a lot of ways by coming full circle. You start in a lot of ways at home and you end talking to your elders, right? You end wheeling your grandfather through what we call the Blacksonian, but what everyone else calls the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, and, and knowing how important fatherhood is to you, I know that you've been thinking and working through what this book means to your elders and your ancestors, but also what this book means to your children and their future descendants. So how did you tend to your spirit knowing the kind of um, weight of lineage that a work like this holds. Yeah, I mean, so I started this book um, in two thousand May two thousand seventeen, which is the same month uh, my son was born, and so it is. It's actually very difficult for me to disentangle the experience of being a parent to young children um, from the experience of writing this book. And part of what parenthood does, I think, is like gets you out of your head in some ways when you otherwise might be sort of uh, spiraling in your head. And so in a sense, what I mean is that like, you know, I come back from Angola uh, and in some ways there's not, you know, I got to be here for my kids. You know, I got to be here. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and like, I have to be fully present for them. Um, and they, they not worry about, the the sort of historical and sociological implications of what happened in Angola. They're like, you're going to build these blocks with me or not. You're going to put some, you're going to put some syrup on my pancakes or what is you going to like, what are you going to do? It's pancakes. And so I'm grateful for my children uh, because they are at once a reminder of why the stakes of this work are so high and why this work feels so urgent. And they also are, anchors that continuously pull me back into myself um, and keep me present. And so I think my my kids and my wife, uh, Ariel, have been central to uh, me staying grounded throughout this process. And then the other part of it is that people, you know, people ask, this must have been so hard, this, you know, this traumatic, violent history. And it was at, at times. And at times, I certainly had to be mindful and step away uh, and take a break. But the other part of this is that, like, in so many ways, it was so freeing and it was so liberating and so emancipatory because I grew up in New Orleans being inundated with messages that, like, New Orleans was the murder capital of the nation. We incarcerate more people per capita than China, Iran and Russia, you know, that people, you know, always people talking about the the projects in New Orleans and why the people who lived in those projects lived the way that they did. And, you know, inundated with these messages about like a culture of pathology, a culture of violence, a culture of laziness messages that so many black folks are inundated with from, from outside for and external forces. And I knew it was wrong, 
And I didn't have the language or the sociology or the history with which to exactly name why it was wrong and to identify it. And, and part of what this book did and part of the project of, I think, so much of my adult life is trying to fill in those gaps that I felt as a kid, because I felt a sort of paralysis, like an emotional and psychological paralysis, where, I, again, I, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know how to say it. And so much of the research of the past four years writing this book has given me new language and given me a new framework and given me a new, uh, more robust understanding of why this country looks the way that it does. And and I think that there is something so so powerful about and this is why I think it's so important for our young people to know this information, but like something so powerful about being given that framing and being given that toolkit to understand, because then this country can't lie to you anymore. This country can't tell you that the things that the reason your life looks the way that it does, or the, the reason your circumstances are the way they are, is because of something you have or haven't done, or because of something your parents have or haven't done, or that your grandparents have or haven't done. Again, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, it is what has been done to people, not the failures of of what people uh, are told that they have not done. Um, and and so I'm grateful for this book because it, I think, opened up an even more robust and deeper understanding of um, of that reality uh, that that it that is that I'm grateful for. Because in many ways, you know, this book was written for a 16 year old Clint. Um, and, uh, the kind of book that I think would have been really helpful for me, uh, to have in order to more effectively understand why, like why I was the, literally under the shadow of, of a Confederate general when I was feeding the ducks in city park with my mother or like why I, you know, again, was riding the, uh, my bike down a street named after somebody who would have wanted me in chains, um, and I was like, you know, so much of the stuff that I wrote in this book, I'm like, why didn't I learn this in my eighth grade Louisiana history class? Why didn't I learn this in AP history? Why didn't I learn this in U.S. history? You know, it's so so I say all that because it's like it was hard, but it was also um, it was also freeing. It really, it really was. Oh, I feel like I'm getting emotional, partially just because I know how hard you've been working at this for so long. And I'm just like really proud of my friend. And I'm also, it was for the 16 year old Brittany and the 36 year old Brittany who is, I have been in a process of encountering my own ancestors. Skip Gates talks about um, the fact that so many of our ancestors, foremothers, forefathers, forebearers, they exist in this kind of historical purgatory and they're waiting to be called out into existence for people to shine the light and say, you were here, you mattered, you still matter. Um, and as I think of those names that I now know and those stories that I now know and the sacrifices that were made so that we could be here having this conversation um, like literally with breath in our bodies. Every time a book like this gets written and every time someone like you decides to be obedient to your calling and fill this book up with love and imagery and humanity and not just fact, um, I think you help unlock more and more of that purgatory. So I am grateful that this book exists in the world. I'm grateful that I had a very good excuse to read it before everybody else did. <laughs> um, these have been fantastic questions. I've got one more from Kirsten who gave the ringer question. Do you believe in reparations? And if so, what form? That's always the question, right? <laughs> man, what time is it? We got I one know, right? We got oh, one man. minute. Come with it, Clint. <sighs> uh, do I believe in reparations? Yes. Uh, and I will say what, uh, someone, uh, one of the people I interviewed said to me, uh, when I was in Senegal, um, uh, cause I asked, I asked this teacher in Senegal, cause I was interested in how West Africans think about, uh, and reckon with the, the history of the, the transatlantic slave trade. And I was asking this teacher in Senegal, like what he thinks about reparations, um, and, and who should get them and, and what that looks like in the context of slavery. And he was like, 
absolutely, you know, I think scholars of good faith can have uh, different ideas about what sort of financial uh, uh, allotments should be handed out and what sort of calculations should be made in order to do so. I think we can think about that in the context of uh, programming. We can think about it in the context of, you know, monetary handouts. We can think about it in the context of public policy. We can think about it in the context of um, all manner of things. But we also have to think about it to bring it full circle in terms of memory. Like we are not only repairing the material damages that have been suffered, and that is deeply important to do, but we also have to repair our collective memory and understanding of what happened. Because if we don't, because the, the thing that is going to allow us to enact and provide material and monetary and policy-based uh, initiatives meant to repair that harm, the thing that is going to allow us to do that is actually have a having a, a collective and full understanding of what the harm was. Like if we don't know what the harm was and we don't account for it, then then we're going to create solutions that are not actually going to 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 uh, mitigate and rectify um, so much of, of what was done. Um, so so I think, yeah, reparations is deeply important. And I think it is something that must be done. Um, there has, there, we have to be repairing and healing both the again, the material damages that have been done over the course of generations and the and the theft and the plunder. Um, and the things that have been truly, truly taken and stolen from communities. And we also have to understand and repair our understanding of what and why and how that theft took place in the first place so that we don't allow that theft to take place again. Yeah. Well, these have been fantastic questions. Um, there's also a tradition here at Inform at the Commonwealth Club to ask every speaker one final question. So before we wrap, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? Oh, man. Uh, I know you can't... I, I know you like speeches, but 60 I know, seconds. I know, you're right. World you, changer. You, you, sound like, you sound like my wife. You've given all these long <laughs> answers. Um... There's something in Germany called the stumbling stones. Um, and they are these sort of uh, tens of thousands of these sort of bricks that are slightly elevated off the ground. And you'll find them in front of restaurants or Nike stores or uh, hotels. And, and what they are, are you walk up to them and you see the names of people and you see certain dates. And what they are, are the names of people who were taken during the Holocaust. Um, and the dates that they were taken from their homes. Um, and they are they sit in front of the buildings that those homes used to be. So you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to a shoe store, you can't go to a yoga studio without encountering the people who were taken from that place and sent to their death. That's, this is not to say that Germany is, you know, has, is, has no issues with anti-Semitism or that they've figured it out completely, but there is a state-sanctioned effort to confront what has been done in their name uh, in ways that you cannot escape in that country. And so I don't know that it would change the world, but I think if I, I wonder what it would look like to have something like that in the US, where like you couldn't go to a restaurant or a shoe store or a yoga studio without confronting the fact that there were enslaved people who were sold on that uh, land or in that home or indigenous communities who were removed from that land or Japanese American communities who were held on that land or all manner of things, right? Like what would it look like and how different would our understanding of our country be if we had these markers uh, collectively uh, spread out throughout this country um, in order to, to mark and make sure that everyday people are regularly confronting um, what has been done again to your question about reparations in order to allow us to more effectively repair and make amends for um, the real harm that uh, that has been done to so many people. Wow. I certainly think that that could help change our world. Thank you, Dr. Clint Smith. Thank you, Inforum and the Commonwealth Club for having us for this conversation. I'd like to remind our audience that Clint's incredible book, 
how the word is passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. We especially love the independent and local ones. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Thank you. Stay safe. And let's go get free, y'all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.